Good morning. How's everybody doing? Awesome. I am Josh. I'm the youth pastor here. I am not the senior pastor. That is David McMahon, and he is actually out on vacation. Uh, So this morning, you get to hear a message from me. And I am honored, and I cannot wait, because God has put this on my heart for quite some time. Uh, And and it's it's amazing. What I'm going to be talking about this morning is Jesus changes everything. And what I discovered in in building this sermon is, is Jesus truly has changed everything that we know as a society, as individuals. So as we, as we get into the message, um, let's, let's, uh, let's pray. God, Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Help us to see this morning opportunities in our lives to spread the gospel through action and word. Not to be under the misconception that we may be unqualified or believe that lie of fear and let it control us, but allow the depth of your love and free gift of your grace to encourage us to speak and act for you, not because we have to, but because we want to and we want to be a part of what you're doing. And if we don't, who will? In Jesus' name, amen. Deception. Murder, lies, deceitfulness, adultery, abduction, separation from God, gluttony, greed, sex slavery. They're just a few things that are not good in our world, right? Not good at all. If Jesus changes everything, why do these things still exist. Why are these things still here? Free will, the natural human condition, either way, either way. I see this as an opportunity in this condition of selfishness, in this condition of all about me. This is an opportunity for the supernatural to break in and do something extraordinary come in and change us from this natural state of being into something that is being sanctified and made holy. If we choose to allow God to be the center of our life and choose to follow him. So there's a guy who recently was on the news for an absolute heinous, heinous act of violence. And happened on this road on New Hope. Two city blocks down from here. <clears throat> I've known this guy since high school. Had some classes with him. Smoked some funny things with him, but we won't get into that. That's an old me. <clears throat> and uh, if my memory preser- serves me correctly, um, a few years ago, I-, I posted a video of the releasing of Barabbas by, by a pastor, a sermon about the releasing of Barabbas and how the Barabbas is all of us. And uh, he watched this video and he posted on there. I couldn't, unfortunately, I couldn't find the comment. I searched for probably longer than I should have. Uh, but he, he, he put the comment that it made him weep. And um, what, I, what I'm bringing is I'm, I'm not going to put what he did on my plate by any means. But what I am suggesting is that if he were 
to follow Christ and start pursuing after him then. If he had maximized opportunity to hear the gospel then, the circumstance that is which is now would be completely different. Completely different. But unfortunately, it is what it is now. And, and in, in, the, in the world of unchurched, in the world of unchurched, what, we, what, what tends to happen is we, get, we tend to make up who Jesus Christ is and who God is in our own minds. That's one of the things that I feel, I feel faltered to whenever I was growing up is that, you know what, Jesus is going to forgive me for what I've done anyway, so why should I follow him? I had a misconception of who he was and what it meant to be a Christ follower and, and, and be a Christian, and I just made up, well, if he's going he's gonna to forgive me, what's, what's the point of even going to church and doing, doing all the right things if he's going to forgive me anyways? So I, I absolutely took his love for granted and, and, and was misconceived about who he was and the depth of which he went to love me. I was not transformed because I did not pursue after knowing him then. But there's something that changes whenever you start to chase after God because Jesus changes everything. <clears throat> And, and one of the things that I, I did is, um, is I let the world shape who I was and not Christ, which led to a plethora of regret, terrible choices, uh, and still have deep roots of shame and regret and disappointment that I often struggle with today. And um, I don't wish upon that upon any of these young men and women who, who are here. And that's one of the things that drives me as a youth pastor is I really want youth to reach the old me. That is one of the things that drives me. Is I, just, I believe that they can reach that person who is the least of these in the schools, who may be an addict, who may be considered somebody who is, who is sleeping around, and who may be somebody who has a bad reputation, period, that they can, are able to reach those folks. I believe that. And that's one of the things that drives me to continue to be a youth pastor. In. But through that season of my life, through that, that, that emptiness, that void, not being a follower and chaser of God, um, I got a pretty, pretty good <clears throat> understanding of what that world was like, what the world separated from God was like. It's very barren, very empty, very dry, full of, of, of um, half-truths at best, uh, superficial and circumstantial friendships and relationships, uh, very, very shallow um, understandings of, 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 of people. You know, you don't really, it, for me, I didn't really love and invest in people the way that, that Christ invested and loved people. And it was just very shallow, very circumstantial, didn't have what I wanted. Well, you know what, I'm going to go somewhere else and find it somewhere else, go hang out with somebody who did have what I want. And, and that was it, uh, along with drug abuse, um, uh, alcohol, and, and, and a plethora of other things. But some of you here, some of you here, grew up without that baggage. Some of you here grew up inside the arms of a loving and gracious church, knowing that you are deeply loved by God. And I, what I want to encourage you is do not let this, <clears throat> this uh, coming to Jesus radically change my life story envy what God has already done and doing in your life. Does that make sense? Because I'll, and whenever, whenever I wrote this, I, this morning, the story of Lazarus really came to me. The story of Lazarus and the rich man really came to me. And uh, I had a youth come up to me during the lock-in that we had one time, uh, this past August. 
And he said, you know, I don't have that kind of story. I don't have that kind of, what, what should I say? And, and, and immediately this story came to mind. And, and the moral of the Lazarus story is that not everybody is given the same life. Not everybody is given the same life. We may be given the same opportunity to live, but not everybody is given the same obstacles in life to live. Therefore, if you have this great love that you've been given through your life, share it. Because one of the things that I struggle with as a human being, as a parent, and as a husband is to look at my wife and my children with all of that as my backdrop. I don't have that amount of churching as my backdrop, that amount of love and compassion of, of all that as my backdrop. I have no idea what it meant to live in, with a, a, a humble man in my home, so as, or a Christ follower in my home. So I did not know what that looked like when I became a husband or a father, and I'm still struggling with that today. So if you have a plethora of love in your background, <clears throat> please meet with me sometime in the near future. I would love it. Because <clears throat> I need some spurring in the right direction, all right? <laughs> uh, and that's, that's inevitably what, what this, the moral of this teaching is, is that, that if you have that love and you've grown with that love and that grace in your life to share it with other people. And that's going to bring us to the scripture today. And we're going to talk in, I'm going I'm to talk in John chapter 1. So as you turn to John chapter 1, verses, that is X. Verses uh, 9 through 14, Uh, I'm going to give us a little bit of context. So this gospel was written by John, uh, the beloved disciple, as many knew him, uh, that he referred to himself in his own gospel, as as, by the way, uh, in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. And according to Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, what a name, right? Polycarp. Uh, and who was a disciple of John. (laughs) You can only imagine, you got John, you got Philip, you got Joshua, you got all these names, and then Polycarp just going to leave that right there. <laughs> uh, but but Poly, according to Ironius, Polycarp, that, that, who was a disciple of John. And the last gospel that was written between 90 and 100 AD. This was the last gospel written. That means that the other three gospels were already in rotation. These are synoptic gospels. This means it's, a, it's, a, it's an order in which that, that has a direction and leading to something that, that has kind of the similar um, uh, storyline with them, but uh, some, some various changes due to who is writing it. So, but, but when you get to John's gospel... John is, is writing on an apologetic and evangelical platform to reach those in Ephesus. And he uses something that's very, very awesome. It's just dualism. I'll get into that in just a minute. Uh, and and it's, it's really, and, and I love this gospel. <clears throat> but he is writing from an apologetic and evangelical platform to reach and to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the king that came into the world, not in a manger, not a castle, not a palace, or even a house in the suburbs of Cedar Park or Leander, but a feed trough. So John 1, verse 10. This is the New King James Version. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him, and he came to his own and did not receive him. I'm going to stop right there. Let's see. Uh, <clears throat> Did not receive him, knew him, did not receive him. Some of you in here have probably lost some friends, 
coming to know Jesus Christ. Probably been rejected by some, coming to know a few. Thank you so much. We might use this for communion. Thank you, sweetie. (laughs) Uh, But may have been rejected by somebody, your family members, friends, relatives, because you have come to know the living God because of Jesus Christ and you becoming a Christian or a Christ follower. Jesus can simplify. He can relate, thank you, to you through what John is, is revealing to us here. The world rejected him, came to his own, made through him, even your own children. I mean, even, he's, he even, even gets to the depths here of, of even if your children have rejected you. Jesus can relate to that. His own creation rejected him. Own creation rejected him. But it doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He goes, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That if you come to know him, what happens? Transformation. You are now something different. You're marked. You're loved. You're a child. Born of God. Not of flesh, not of man, but of God. You now enter into the family. And he is like, yes, come on in. But so much, so many times, we are like, yes, I'm doing this. And then what happens? We will sin. We'll be at the table with God. We'll be coming and feasting and enjoying prayer time and reading scripture. And then we mess up. And you know what? I don't, I don't deserve to be in your presence. I don't deserve. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to. And we walk away due to that separation. But Jesus changes everything. As a father, as a savior, he says, no, bring that burden. Bring that heaviness. Here, son, sit down because I love you. I love how John keeps it simple. Love how he keeps it simple. Let's read 14. But as, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. I love how John keeps it simple using dualism, light, dark, love, hate, life, death, from above, from below. Simple. John writes about Jesus being in the world, being rejected by his own people, whom he created. He also writes about something called truth. What is truth? The very question that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, we So desperately wish he would have given him an answer. But he did not. But he did. But not directly like Jesus always does. Just spells things out plain and simple. Um, So he doesn't say exactly what truth is. But according to philosophy, we have five different definitions of what truth is. So for... Um, we have correspondence, 
We have coherence, pragmatic, semantic, deflationary, and their truth is, there's a lot of theories of truth, but um, there's still pushback on each one. Correspondence is kind of like the mainly, the, the one that's widely accepted. About 46% of all philosophers really accept that one as, a, as the, the way to, to decipher what is truth and how to define what truth is and what basis truth is. Uh, understanding, so if we make a truth claim like the snow is white, what basis do you have to say that the snow is white? Um, and, and we won't get into all of that this morning. Uh, but yes, <clears throat> but uh, here is what Jesus says about truth. And we're going to turn to John 14, 6. And as you're turning to John 14, 6, I'm going to kind of give some, some context to that as well. So in John chapter 14, Jesus announces his departure. He foretells Peter's denial, comforts his disciples. So Peter is like, he's like, oh, Jesus, uh, uh, you can't leave. You're leaving me. You ain't going to leave. I'll go and die with you. And Jesus is like, hold up, man. I, 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 I know, but before the, the crow or before the rooster crows, Three times you're going to deny me. He's like, no, I'll die with you. And Jesus denies him three times, or uh, Peter denies him three times. And then Jesus has to go and comfort his disciples. And then we get to chapter 14, almost around six. And there's Thomas. Oh, Thomas. A lot of folks call Thomas Doubting Thomas. I love to call Thomas Honest Thomas. Because he's just being honest, right? And, and in, in, this, in this scenario, from straight confusion, because... Uh, Jesus is pretty, pretty confusing in what he's saying. None of them are understanding it. They're like, no, I'm, you're not leaving. Why are you leaving? What do you mean you're going somewhere and we can't, we can't you know, go where you're going? And, and this, that, and the other. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? He's straight confused here. He's like, what are you talking about? And Jesus says this to him. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. There is no other religion in the world that offers what Jesus Christ has to offer. Jesus Christ is the absolute dominant figure in all of history, in all of history. There is no other person in his, any evidence that we have that justifies the life, death, resurrections, and teachings of Jesus Christ that there is nobody in comparison, Not, no, no documents. We have documents that are three and a half empire state buildings tall that justifies the New Testaments. New Testament, sorry. And the only one in comparison to that, the highest amount of documents that we have of somebody's teachings and understandings is only three feet tall. Jesus is undoubtedly the most influential and the most justified person and dominant figure in all of history. All of history. Nobody holds a flame to who he is, what he's done, and what he continues to do. <clears throat> so over the past 2,000 years, the world has been dramatically shaped, dramatically shaped by the life, death, resurrection, and teachings of Jesus Christ. Here's this quote from a historian, H.G. Wells. I am a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian. He said, I'm not a believer. Just take note of that. As a historian, this Penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Here's another quote. I know men. I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, 
Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. That was Napoleon. Here another quote. As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. That is Albert Einstein himself. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut up Shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him, kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. That is C.S. Lewis, as he refers to himself, the most reluctant Christian convert to ever come to know Christ. Socially, Jesus Christ has changed so many things. Women's rights, the woman at the well, John 4, 42, the adulterous woman, John 8, 1, 11, treated like property, traded. Back then, a Samaritan was considered a half-breed. A, a Jewish man, especially a rabbi or somebody in leadership, would not be condoned to, teach, to talking to a Samaritan woman. Yet he goes and sits at her side and talks to her and tells her that I have living water to offer you. And guess what else he says? He's also, uh, <clears throat> some preachers often say that this woman was a very adulterous woman. But she had five husbands. And women back then could not sanction divorce. Could not sanction divorce. Therefore, she was traded, given from one man to another. Not by her own will, but by that of each one, possibly. My word for it, it's a, theoretically. Okay. But we also don't, theoretically, she could also have had those desires as well, and Jesus is teaching to her. But, but let's not jump to the conclusion that that is what she is. And Jesus reaches into her heart and offers her, offers her living water where she will thirst no more. And that's what he offers all of us that we will not thirst anymore. Now we have sex slavery and discrimination against women run rampant in unchristianized communities all over the world. But in, Western, in our Western world, women are experiencing the most freedom and privilege ever seen, ever seen in human history, ever seen. If it weren't for Jesus, society would look extremely different from a woman's perspective and his love didn't break into this world. Jesus' pure and sacrificial love for women has undoubtedly made our planet a better place to live. And human rights, basic human rights are a part of the fabric of the Western civilization. Basic human rights. We have basic human right to vote, go out and, and walk around. We can carry our Bibles in the streets. That's a basic human right. You can worship whatever God you want to. Um, it's basic human rights to do as you wish um, under certain 
certain laws, right? Uh, <clears throat> but from a historical perspective, things were very, very different until the life, death, resurrection teachings of Jesus Christ. The foundation of slavery crumbled from the bold hearts of Christians willing to step up and say that this is wrong and every human life has the right to live without stipulation of skin color, religion, or origin. But on the flip side of that coin, there was also Southern religious folk who was using the Bible to justify slavery. And unfortunately, you can take, some, and, and some, some preachers do this too, you can take uh, some scripture, take one line out of it, and completely manipulate it into being whatever you want. And that's exactly what, what happened in the gist of, of a lot of the South. Justifying it by means of, of taking it out of context and not looking at the totality of what was before and how it transpired over time. Okay? <clears throat> and, and humanitarian aid, Christians send missionaries to help with both physical and spiritual needs all over the world. One journalist from Africa who is an atheist wrote uh, in, a, in, a, in an article that uh, Ravi Zacharias said in one of his videos, that he is a, an apologist that I follow, he, he wrote that I'm amazing myself, writing this from myself, that the only thing that seems to be keeping people from slaughtering one another is the missionaries who bring the redemptive properties of Christianity over here and change lives. So not going and just, and just speak, saying good things or, or just do good does not work whenever the definition of good can be interpreted in different areas of the world. But whenever you have the redemptive foundational properties of Christianity, of Jesus and what he taught and how he, how he loved people, and you go and love people in, in areas of the world where it is, it is not easy to do, people tend to to listen and want a savior and want to be transformed because they're tired, weighed down of that life. Education, the first universities were started by Christians. Science was started by Christians. Listen to this quote from Rodney Stark. is a professor of sociology and comparative religion at the University of Washington in For the Glory of God. And I quote, what is science? It is a combination of observation and theory that leads to testable predictions and prohibition about the results of further observations. A great deal of knowledge was gathered by observation, by observation and by trial and error in all ancient cultures. But this is not science. Aristotle, for example, observed wild, widely and theorized extensively, but he did not test his theories against his observations. So he was not a scientist. Alchemy and astrology were highly developed in China, Islamic religions, India, and ancient Greece and Rome. But only in medieval Europe did these become the science of chemistry and astrology. And it is the consensus among contemporary historians, philosophers, and sociologists of science that real science arose only once in Europe. The leading scientific figures in the 16th and 17th centuries were overwhelmingly devout Christians who believed it their duty to comprehend God's handiwork. That is from Rodney Stark, a professor of sociology and comparative religion at University of Washington. So the sixth thing that I'm going to talk about is that Jesus changes lives. This is something that cannot be measured, that he has changed so many lives over the past 2,000 years. It is absolutely unmeasurable to know how many lives that he had. Personal testimony is one of the most greatest things that we can witness to that justifies his great love for us. We are flawed, fickle, selfish, worldly vessels. You do not have to teach a child to be selfish, do you? Not at all. So what happens when generations of families 
aren't exposed to Christianity, aren't exposed to the love and grace and mercy of Jesus. And generation after generation have that same going back to Genesis 1 and discerning what is good and what is evil for themselves and not letting God define what is good and what is evil. We need a Savior. We need to be saved from sin within ourselves. Like that friend of mine who was sitting in prison for a heinous, heinous act of violence, if he were have allowed God in his heart then, the current situation would be much, much different. We become adopted into this family. We become co-heirs to the kingdom of the living God with compassion, truth, life, grace. I started leading a Bible study at my job that I had before I became full-time in 2018. We have currently gone through Alpha, Gospel of Matthew, and uh, the book of Acts we are currently in right now. And I'm just going to give you a quote from one of the ladies in there about how impactful, not me, but this living word is for her. As she says that it feels like I am being born again. Because the word of God is that powerful, living, breathing. It breathes hope into our lives, to every human life who chooses to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, which is why it is so important for us to carry this good news, which is why it is so important for us to not keep our mouths closed, which is why it's so important for us Read, understand, and know who God is and the word. And not keep it to ourselves, but give it to others. Just like Lazarus. Moral, to give what you've been given to others, to carry the good news to the life of the wicked, the hurt, the lost. That we can maximize if we can maximize how much gospel is saturated into our community, then we can maximize the amount of people that we can save that can be drawn to Christ. But if we don't act and we just sit, then none appear. Spiritually, the veil between God and man In the innermost part of the sanctuary back, the synagogues, was a place where no one could go because that was the holiest of holy places. And when Jesus died, the veil was torn. Symbolically saying that there is no more need to go and sacrifice. That God is now available to all. We have complete access to God all the time, wherever we may be. No longer do we have to sacrifice animals for our, for our sins. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for the world, and he defeated evil. Evil tried to put Jesus in a tomb, loved, walked out. Selfishness closed off. Angry religious hypocrites tried to snuff the silence and silence his name, and even seeing the greatness of what Jesus did wasn't enough to convince them that he was the Son of God, and they put him on a cross to suffer and die. He was and is 
the Messiah that was greatly anticipated in the world as we know it not be what it is today for that penniless preacher from Nazareth. This morning, I want to ask you a few questions. This year, how has Jesus changed or is changing you? How have you helped lead a person to know the gospel by action and word? And how far have you gone to seek first the kingdom of God? Next year, how are you going to do the same thing? To seek first the kingdom of God, bringing in a new you. To bring others to know Christ. To know this redemptive, penniless preacher from Nazareth who talked about love and loved so deeply that it changed so many lives and continues to change lives. That we cannot keep quiet about it, but must carry this good news into our society and into our communities because they are desperately hurting and in need of the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus makes people new. Following Jesus has the power to kill sin. And becoming a a Christian takes us and makes us into new creations from a worldly, selfish person into a selfless, loving, generous, teaching, born-again creation. Why would we not want to carry these words? and follow these teachings and bring this good news into the lives of others, inevitably making our world, our community, a better place. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen.